Okay, welcome back to the Concert Honesty Podcast. This is episode number 153 with my guest, Roger Zahab. Roger is a composer. Um, I met him at the University of Akron, and he was the first person who ever wrote me a brand new piece from scratch for the steel drums, for the double seconds, called I Still Dream. He also wrote me a duet for me and my friend Jeff Naitsky called uh, Jump. Uh, and he's been a mentor and a friend of mine my whole life, ever since going to the University of Akron. And I highly recommend you listen to this podcast. Uh, Roger's a wise, wise man. So I hope you enjoy this. This is Roger Zahab. Okay, talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. I mean, really, that's, I mean, I, I can sigh and then I can bask in your presence. <laughs> I am so grateful. Well, well Roger, I, likewise. And I um, let's gavel this officially. Just, just. Before we gavel, just to be clear, I'm this. This stuff was all off the record. I, I'm not going to put this up. Um, but mm-hmm. um, we're officially on the record now. Um, Roger Zahab, I'm. I reached out to you. Um, you've been a dear friend of mine, and when I say dear friend, like some people take that as a like, this is someone I hang out with and text with every day, and I know what you know. I I talk with Roger in the morning over coffee. Like that's not the type of friends we are. Um, I wish it would be more that, but just life is life, and sometimes things work out the way they do. Currently, with the world on fire, um, I am, th- and the way people talk about, and, and also sort of how that overlaps with how musicians collaborate with each other, whether it be musician to musician, musician to composer, composer to composer, composer to audience, audience, uh, performer to audience, and then the post concert discussions and all of that stuff. Um, you are the very first person in my life who I ever had a part in making something completely new in the world, and it happened on steel drums. Um, yes. And I don't know how that dovetails into this conversation or whether it even should, but I I think about that collaboration. Well, we won't call it a commission because you lost money on that gig. Um I think I may have I made more so money. Much more. I may I may have made more money playing that piece <laughs> at Bruce Taub's gigs than you than I paid you. But I I will say um, it changed my life in a way that I think I'm not always conscious of. It's not always on the front of my head of like, oh yeah, this is why I'm doing it. It's because of the way Roger dealt with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for being the type of person who doesn't walk in the room and say, this is my vision. Sit down and shut up. And you've always been someone who sort of asked questions. Um, you refused to let me pay you because you didn't know anything about the steel drums. You were willing to tell me that you don't know something. Um, you also have very strong feelings about things. You don't like vibrato on the violin. And um, I remember you very clearly telling me why. You were like, if you can't find the pitch, that's why you hover around it. And like a C is a C. It's not a C, a C sharp, a B, a C sharp, a B, a C sharp, a B, a C sharp. That's not a C. That's a C. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm exaggerating here, of course, Roger. And I don't, I'll let you speak in a second. But you, I've just learned a ton from you. And I, I don't, again, I don't have a question, but I just want to say thank you. And um, I'm kind of curious, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about knowing that? Um, we spoke a little bit that the world's on fire, but I, I, I want to have conversations with people I care about. And people I've had conversations with over a long period of time and ones that have been unrecorded. And I kind of want to show people how to have a conversation. And that's why I'm talking with my friends. So uh, I guess I'll say, Roger, how are you doing? And can you maybe show me a little bit or teach me a little bit about how you got to that practice room at the University of Akron with me? Because I don't actually know how baby Roger 
got into music. And I wish I knew Baby Roger because I'll bet that would have been a sight. <laughs> well, it it uh, I think that you're mentioning my discovery of the still pans, still drum mm-hmm. is um, probably the key to Baby Roger's experience of life. The the idea of maybe wonder and befuddlement and um, understanding the world through relationships, which is, I've always understood music as primarily that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the sounds relate to each other. They seem to exist when you, you're walking through the forest and you come across some sounds, you say, mm-hmm. I, uh, these are in the wild. I don't know what they are. And then you uh, discover that you have a relationship as you're hearing them. Mm-hmm. And if they're made by other sentient beings, like birds, then they have patterns. If they are made by the universe, you as a sentient being nonetheless discover patterns in them. You can't help it. Mm-hmm. It's really unavoidable. And that is also a kind of relationship. It's a, it's the listener, the, the person being attentive engaging with phenomena and you were phenomenal as a, I think you were 18 years old. Uh, when I got to Akron, so I had been to Ohio state for two years. Um, oh, for two years. And then I transferred mm-hmm. when I came to Akron, I was 20. I think I had just turned 21. Um, 21. And I don't know if we met in my first year there or not. I, I know remember. if you, if you made a sound on an instrument, I would have heard you Probably. because I attended all the percussion ensemble yeah performances and, and I played in your new music ensemble as well there. That's right. My first, yeah. first year, it was only one year. Or was it two years that I played? Like I, I try to remember where we overlapped in terms of when you were running the new music ensemble. Um, it would have been like 2000, 2001 ish. I'm imagining. Right. Yeah. So that was uh, just about the last, I can't even remember. I was I directed it for 13 years. You were just leaving that position, and you wrote a piece called um, "Stand Clear of the Closing Doors." And yeah, I had watch the closing n- doors. watching clo- and I had no idea what that was. And then I moved to New York, and I hear that <laughs> ding dong ding. Watch the closing doors, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, for those who are not used to subway, uh, uh, the elevator doors are closing. Yeah, and uh, so you, uh, I was very uncomfortable at the idea of writing for still drums. Mm. And I thought precisely because I feel uncomfort discomfort at this, it's clearly time for me to engage. Why was, what was the discomfort? Like, can you put a specific descriptor on the discomfort? Well there, so your description of the instrument. And when I looked at it, um, it is not on a timeline. So the, I mean, the violin is uh, is a a gamut from lowest to highest, and you can slide your finger and hear the sounds go up. The keyboard is the same way. Uh, wind instruments have a different um, fingering pattern, but they're columns of air that is shortened and lengthened. And the still drum is something that, even in its very construction, within its construction, is encoded its history. Mm. Right? To me, that is profoundly 
intriguing. And it also, once again, points to what I don't know. I don't, I don't, didn't know how this oil drum was turned into, you know, Mm. turned into an instrument and how the instruments can be, it's an iconic sound and yet every instrument is different. Very much like a violin in Mm. some ways. I mean, different sizes and different tones. And um, I felt it was time I do periodically feel stuck in habit and it was the perfect opportunity to get out of, to get out of my cage. <laughs> As my mentor uh, would say, it's to just get out of whatever cage you're in. So that, uh, and that allowed me to, the style of the piece also allowed me to uh, let go of some, preoccupations that I had that didn't always work. Hmm. Well, I remember I talked with you um, a little, I'm trying to remember exactly how our conversation, I mean, there's no way I can remember exactly how our conversation went in 2000, 2001. But um, I know that at the time I, I wanted you to see the instrument, not as uh, I don't know how to say this without being culturally insensitive, but I wanted you to see the instrument um, just as a potential. There's, just as a thing that has a potential for sound quality. That's it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I didn't want you to have any presumptions about the culture, about the way Mm -hmm. a soca rhythm was played. Now in 2000, I was not as steeped. I mean, I'm now 20 years more steeped in that, that, that tradition and that performance practice, Mm -hmm. but I'm actually really glad. I think I stand behind my 19 or my 20 year old approach, which is like, I actually think the way to put this instrument to way to put an instrument out in front of the world and help it, it appear in as many different sort of as diverse a field as you can possibly get it um, is to just say, this is an instrument that has sound possibilities. Um, but also to be a hundred percent aware of the context in which it's coming out of. I don't mm-hmm. think that's your responsibility necessarily. That's mine as the person who's being like, Hey Roger, do you want to write for this instrument? Like mm-hmm. we spoke about it. Like you, you, you know that my you knew my that my intent was serious. You you could probably mm-hmm. tell that I had that you, even though you didn't necessarily have a background with black musicians from Trinidad talking about that instrument. You you read the room in terms of my approach. So it's it's it was odd. Like we I don't think we really had to sort of talk about that stuff. But um, I'm curious for you. Did you have any sort of were there any cultural sort of hangups that you had about the instrument, um, knowing that it's like Jimmy Buffett cruise ships. Jamaica, like Hawaii often gets lumped in. It's like, you'd be closer if you said like Ada, Oklahoma is where steel drums came from than Hawaii. But um, like for you, were there any, were there any sort of hangups on that front or? I didn't, I didn't have hangups. I felt intimidated. Um, And my first live hearing of steel drums uh, was walking the streets of New York where I lived 78 to uh, 88. And I knew uh, Jamaicans and Trinidadians in my and uh, in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. and some of them were artists rather than musicians. And um, I mean, you know, the, I have a personal connection with other because my family are Lebanese Americans. Mm-hmm. 
And in recent days, I've been thinking about how, as a person, if you walk up to someone from a distance and your eyesight is bad, you just see the most general form. Mm-hmm. And uh, just talking about my personal experience um, as a musician, all of my life, people approaching me from a distance or hearing me from a distance were only able to form the most general idea of who I might be. If I'm a violinist, that automate there are a bunch of buttons to push. Uh, that kind of musician or that kind of person. Um, and the, the still drum is complicated by the fact that it is, has such a rich palette of overtones, mm-hmm. a chaotic palette. And it is so distinctive that the other experience that I had of, the, of still drums was in Hans Werner Hens's Sixth Symphony. Mm. I don't know that one. I know, Which like Belez has Belez has some steel drum parts that pop up like in more pieces than you'd be than you'd think, and you'd I, be surprised. Yeah, yes. I know. And, it's and, like it's, towards the end of his career, right? <laughs> so it's uh, I uh, isn't it also in Repon? Aren't there still drums or uh, yeah? Uh, um, or in Cease is one. Cerance. It has like bass pans, which is the other. Like to me, that's even weirder. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the idea is if like you're, you're Boulez, you have to, you have to have the full range. We're going right? to rent a set of six bass for this piece. Oh my god! But that, so uh, so Hans Werner Hense is is not is really quite in, politically perhaps the opposite of Pierre Boulez. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Sixth Symphony was written in Havana. Uh, and was I think premiered by their national orchestra, mm-hmm. and it 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 it's the German composer, uh, I think socialist, uh, comp- politically leaning, uh, indulging in Cuban song and still drums and electric guitar, mm-hmm. and trying to combine in his way. All, all of these things that for him are so important to him as a political animal mm-hmm. to create a work of art that is in many ways quite unlistenable, mm. even to the most fervid, total chromatic, abstract expressionist music lover, mm. <laughs> really. <laughs> so, um, and so there that. That is a curious because I find some of that composer's work deeply affecting and some of it truly puzzling. And then there, this is a like a summa. At that point, it was the culmination of his entire life to trying to become a fully engaged musician working with this orchestra of Cubans, right? Cuban musicians uh, who he clearly respected for the insanely difficult parts he wrote for him. But then it's him playing out his own internal chaos on this poor orchestra. And uh, so in taking up the still drum, I thought the first thing to do is to really dialogue with you about not not only to to get it always has to be provisional and understanding i mean for me the violin 
is uh, something that I'm always uh, at a slight disadvantage with because it the instrument itself has come from so many sources and is played in so many ways. Some violins have only one string and are played upright on balanced on the knee or between the feet. Others are held on the shoulder. Others are under the chin. They may be, it may be played in any way by anyone. Mm. And so the instrument is actually always in a relationship with its operator, with its performer and the experience, the history, the intelligence, the soul of the performer comes out through the instrument. And the closer the relationship is between the instrument and the performer, the more seamless that connection and the listener cannot tell where one begins and the other starts, mm-hmm. where one ends right. and the other starts. Right. So, um, so the, the, the fascination for me was that proverbial blank slate where I had no idea what I could possibly do. And the first thing was obviously to listen to you play and to see what was important to you. And I actually, my, uh, I've had a similar experience with the Kyogum, um, the Korean zither. I think it was a 12 string Kyogum that I wrote for, um, it, it's an instrument completely out of my experience that has an iconic sound. Mm. And I am always, when dealing with such things, I'm conscious of being outside of the tradition, but not being outside of the relationship zone with the people who, who play it. Mm-hmm. So. Well, how um, do you, how do you, um, I remember you and I having a conversation um, about, art and commerce and how you as a composer, and I think I just asked a question out of like stupidity being like, Roger, why don't you, why don't you take commission fees? And um, again, I, I don't want to be disingenuous here and say that you've never received a commission fee for your work. I'm sure you have, mm-hmm. but I think I when you get and but when you, and that's why I asked the question, because when you and I spoke, like you were always like, I don't want the relationship to be based on money. I want, I don't want my art to have to rely on somebody else's currency or to have a say in something and what I do. And if you don't like it, I don't want you to feel like I owe you money back or something, Mm -hmm. you know, that was 20 years ago when we were having those conversations. So I'm assuming stuff has changed and gotten more nuanced, but what has been your relationship as a composer? I know we're sort of, I I, I want to get to baby Roger eventually and to John Cage, but we're sort of working (laughs) backwards here, but what is your relationship just as a composer i get a lot of questions from young composers being like what do i ask for a commission fee should i say 250 bucks and like a year of exclusivity i'm like have you ever done this before no and then i'm like maybe just start with hanging with a friend start there mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> buy each other dinner and start there write a contract that says i'll buy you dinner at tgi fridays if you buy me dinner at red robin that's all Start there. It's more you know? valuable. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm, uh, and again, I, that's not a way that everybody needs to work, but it's a way that you and I worked. I don't. What's that place that uh, w- that you and I would go and get wings? It was right near the end of Market Street. It was a little bar. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? It was like um, kind of at this like point where Market and Exchange kind of started to merge, and there was a little bar there that we went to several times. It had wings, Buffalo Wings and Weck. No, it wasn't BW3s. It was a little tiny like. Um, like a green, it was green. I don't know why I remember it being green. 
uh, uh, Rockneys? Yes, Rockneys. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. We it's went still there. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fight the fight. Good. Fight the good fight, Rockneys. But for you, what is your what has been your relationship or how has it evolved over time as a like a composer who wants to participate in the market economy and deal with capitalism as it over intersects with art? Mm-hmm. How have you skinned that cat over the course of your life? Okay, so we're going to I'm going to talk about things that are fairly difficult. Well, I only I, again. I only want you to speak on your behalf. I'm not asking necessarily for you to say what other compo- like what have how. No, have no, you I am. Yeah. I am speaking. I mean, that's partly what makes it difficult. So, um, um, it is necessary to be paid for one's work, and it's necessary, especially if uh, I mean, for so many composers, it's a calling. You don't do it. I mean, no one would ever think to become a composer to become wealthy. Bite your tongue, Roger. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. I mean, there are some who have been able to do it. Yeah. But when you when you look at what they have done, you understand that it's not just the act of composing. Mm-hmm. Right. It is never, it can never just be. Nowadays, it's not even writing on paper, of course, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so you would never just, I've made this thing, and now I'm going to become rich. Right. Right. Even folks who are famous and you you perceive as having a lot of money, like Steve Reich or Philip Glass, like Mm -hmm. that is never there. I'm guessing what I've I've spoken with Steve a lot about, his Mm -hmm. intent is never to make a shitload of money when he sits down to write a piece because he wants to make good music. And he now has gotten to the point where that – that product of his is being compensated in a certain way, but mm-hmm. the man drove a cab, you know, like he, yes. <laughs> you know, so like say what you want about him. It's, I mean, and that's, that's exactly it. You, you don't, so you start out, you don't really know you have ambitions and, and beautiful dreams mm-hmm. and you don't know where it will turn out. And for many composers, the way they started out is not the way they end is not exactly was, was unforeseen. Mm-hmm. Right. There are people who've been, and I'm not, I wouldn't dare name any names, but there have been wonderful composers who had a moment of great fame mm-hmm. and were touted as the thing. And then they disappear. Mm-hmm. And I, I have friends. I mention their names to people, and it, I, it's just a total blank. The, the musicians who pride themselves on knowing every composer of the 20th century don't doesn't register, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my and this again goes back to relationships. I always um, I thought I can't help myself. I imagine music that I have not heard. Mm-hmm. Or I imagine music that is similar to what I've heard, but I would like it to be different. I would like it to go a different way. Um, sometimes uh, as a violinist, I'm thinking, oh, I could have done, I would like to write something like that, but make it easier to play, but sound harder. And then vice versa, I would like to write a really hard piece in which I could learn better how to play the violin. Mm-hmm. So I've already, so I'm already thinking as a young composer of a gamut 
of difficulty and then a gamut of style. And that was, this is the central um, um, marker for composers my age. We were uh, herded in the feedlot towards a, <laughs> a feeding stall, right? So that you, oh no, it's uh, this is a straight Somebody line. Somebody taped from, cattle prodding you the whole way. They're prods or they're prodding you. Oh, there's Bach and there's, yeah. And then, oh, we think of the French. We think of them a little bit, but not too much because they're, they're, uh, they're corrupting influences. And then we go, oh, yes, there's Schoenberg and Webern and Berg. And then there's, and, and some, some people have tried to say that it was not the case. But I had too many personal experiences where, for instance, um, a person who remains a friend to this day, I remember him explaining to me patiently that one could not have octaves mm-hmm. or that one could not have a triad, that, you know, you can't have a triad in this piece. That, that means that you're not serious. Right? I've come to so, learn. Do you know Caroline Shaw at all? I haven't met her, but I know her. Caroline, I, we've known Caroline. I was in school with Caroline. She is amazing. and she, But she's one of these composers who when you listen to you're like, oh, now I know. Like She's using a C, an E, and a G in that mm-hmm. order, and it works. And then you're like, oh, it's just like any – it's like the speeding up and slowing down gesture in improv. If you do it well, it works. Mm-hmm. If you don't. It doesn't like, just, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, like, <clears throat> and, and that was, I mean, for, for those composers, my age, that was a, um, there was no book mm-hmm. and there was no course for that negotiation. So you are, so you have an, an academic structure that is based on, um, fairly dependable results, yeah. uh, ways of teaching, that are enshrined in custom and tradition mm-hmm. and have a very clear end purpose. And sometimes that end purpose is, is, has more to do with respect and the demands of history as written by other white men composers, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and institutions that will entertain the possibility of performing your work exactly once and give you a token payment and then send you on your way. Mm-hmm. And that is what I discovered early on. And I am grateful for every one of my mentors, my traditionalist mentors, and none more so grateful than to Lewis Lane, who is resident conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra and, and my first mentor in orchestral performance. I played uh, in the Akron Symphony for four years. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I, to this day, realized that I learned more from him mm-hmm. than all the books I studied and all of the, the pieces I wrote um, about orchestral sonorities and and how one plays in an orchestra but it told me nothing about the larger question of musical culture world culture where does music live what is its use and um when i moved to new york i moved to stony brook to to get my master's degree there and then moved into the city and and was told very patiently by a another good friend that I should register with one of the performing uh, 
the PR um, performance royalty organizations mm -hmm. so that I could have some income. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that it wasn't from commissions, but it was from licensed performances that I actually um, to this day have been able to pay at least one month's rent or more. Now, these are just so folks who don't have any idea of how this sort of system works. There's like ASCAP and BMI, and I'm not sure right. if there are and others. There's, uh, there's uh, CSAC. Okay. And what those organizations primarily are tasked with doing is like if I, do, if I play I Still Dream or Jump by Roger Zahab mm -hmm. in public, a concert hall like Carnegie Hall um, is required to sort of – if I present that program to you, Roger Zahab, and then you mm -hmm. turn it into ASCAP or BMI, ASCAP or BMI sends you a check for 40 bucks or 80 bucks or whatever it is. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But to say, we acknowledge your piece is played in public. Carnegie Hall is not sending you a check for this, but they sent us money because right. they pay into the system. Here's your They 40 have a bucks. license. It's sort of yep. like you have a little manager who's out representing you in a weird way. But Yes, like, BMI has been uh, astonishing um, for me. Uh, they also are able to capture even, uh, I believe, radio performances in Europe. Yeah. And and I, there are things happening that I don't know about right. until uh, usually a year or to two years later, I get a, a, a sheet, uh, a statement that details at least where the performance happened. Right. In what country. Yeah. And, um, and that's something I remember early on mailing you. Uh, like folding them up programs. in an envelope and sending you programs. Like like yeah. once every three months, I'd be like, well, time to mail Roger his $120, but it's going to just be photocopied pieces yes. of paper that I, <laughs> I made at Kinko's. You know, so like it's such a weird feeling. It It, it is a strange. Uh, now, of course, everything is up for grabs. Um, I mean, there's such a new, um, there are many new questions about streaming services mm -hmm. and video you know, music yeah. embedded in videos and stuff. Uh, but um, so that, so that is very much like um, when we, I still get the wonderful benefit of hearing you play my music and the equally wonderful benefit of being your friend and having conversations. And occasionally we'll, we'll go out mm -hmm. and uh, I like to go back and forth with the uh, shouting of drinks and food. Right. I mean, I like to buy you, then yeah. you can buy me. And the, right. We're just giving each other is, money. It is, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The royalty situation. Commissions are another thing. So, um, and I, I've actually been very fortunate to have quite a few commissions and many of them, almost every one of them was interesting because I, try to be very honest about not being interested in doing something that isn't personally relevant to me mm -hmm. and my music. I have occasionally done work for others in which I'm doing things that are not interesting until I find a, a door into that. Yeah. I have to find something that's, that's interesting. That's something that's interesting. I mean, it's, I, I feel like performers need to think this way when you're talking about gigs you're going to take. I mean, that's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're being commissioned to do a thing, you yeah. know, like, it's the same thing. Um, and you have there's currency. I think folks there's there's currency in your desire to do something in addition to the money you make afterwards. So like if you're not psyched about a project, you should probably fight to get paid just a hair more. Mm -hmm. But if you're super jonesed about it and you know that you're going to sleep with a low resting heart rate and be absolutely excited to jump out of bed the next morning, 
you should try to pay your rent. Absolutely. For sure. But Mm -hmm. if it helps the equation at all to say, you know what? I would rather just have complete control over this because I love this. No, that's a way to negotiate a commission fee too. Like, um, it's up to you, I guess, is what you want your currency to be. And some people I feel I found like with you often, and again, you're not this way with everybody, but with me, you've been like, I'd rather just go to Rodney's and have like a bad Caesar salad and some chicken wings and shoot the shit, you know, over Mm -hmm. a Sam Adams. Um, that's not to say if I was like, Roger, I want you to write me an hour long evening length piece, an opera, one man opera that you'd be like, sure, let's go have a beer and call it even like, that's not always how things are going to work. But um, I wish composers and especially young composers and performers would start with that mentality of like, okay, what do I consider currency? Does it have to be money all the time? Because I think folks get, they're like, oh, cool. I got $300. And then you're working with someone you don't like, and they're asking you to play music that you hate or write music you don't want to. And so let's just talk for a moment about the orchestra. Sure. Uh, So interestingly enough, should you, as a composer, ever have the chance to have your work done by even a, a university orchestra or a municipal orchestra or, amazingly, of, of one of the top five, your royalties will be astronomically higher mm-hmm. than for a chamber work. It is, um, that's how it goes. I mean, there are many more people striving to play your work. And the guy who played the bass line for Seinfeld is making (laughs) way more money than the the guy who played the bass line for the like the obscure Netflix documentary about like marshmallows, you know, like there's just a (laughs) yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, and there, there is something about that, but but then there is the other thing. Uh, and this this has to do with my life as an orchestral musician. I still play the violin. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm still making my way through a list of some incredibly taxing works and some very simple works that I have not yet performed for my friends. Um, but as an orchestral musician and a conductor, I understand how the beast lives how it works and i have written too much music for orchestra and the the most recent ones have all been commissions mm. except for the the two last ones which were i i just they were pieces i had to write mm. one for my university orchestra and one for the music on the edge chamber orchestra so you uh the manager of the orchestra and the conductor meet with you. Um, the conductor usually knows your work fairly well and is uh, a little nervous because uh, they know what lengths you could go to, what extremes. Well, they, the they also know has, that you know the piece better than them. That's the other, like, right. just by default, no matter who, how, yes. like, whether you're working with Gustavo Dudamel or, like, a student conductor – you know the piece better than they do, so by default they're in a weakness. You're in a weak position, you know. But I, I am. I, so, but the manager is the money person. So they are, and they really. Again, I'm not going to mention any names, sure. but in their minds, this is a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. You are not going before you've written a note or even thought about it. 
it's very clear in their minds that you are not going to make one bit of difference in the history of music or in the history of their orchestra or in the culture of orchestral music. You're, it's not, there is no reason to do this except that it looks good for the orchestra. There are some people who like your music, which is why you're there, and they will be pleased. And it will give you, it is a gift to the composer to have the opportunity to write for an orchestra. Mm-hmm. The older the composer is, the more they've written for the orchestra, the less of a gift it seems. Because the more experience you have, the more work you realize it is. And, the, and I'm curious, I've never written for an orchestra, but I've, I've you know, so has had I've been very fortunate. I mean, again, I took like an orchestra audition in college and failed miserably and always liked playing an orchestra. And when I was at Akron, the orchestra program wasn't, I don't know what it's like now. And I don't know, uh, it wasn't a very strong orchestra program and Mm -hmm. I didn't know any better. So to me, it was like, oh, this is orchestra, you know? And then Mm -hmm. I get to grad school and I see how like an orchestra, like like an orchestra as an organism functions. And it's like, whoa, okay. All right. Like, Mm -hmm some of the problems at Akron that I noticed were, are, are happening at Yale, but just on a way bigger, more exa- yes. exaggerated scale. <laughs> and both, I mean, there, there were pluses and minuses about being in a very small orchestra at Akron, but um, I am always shocked at that organism at, I don't know how to say this without sounding derogatory because I've had amazing experiences too with orchestras. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always amazed at how unaware, <laughs> how unaware, the system is as a whole of how unique it is actually in the world. Mm-hmm. Like how many orchestras are there in the world name? Like I'll like of, of import of cultural import that had like is, is actually driving the ship because I think folks get an outsized per- perspective, at least in the orchestra world that they are the predominant voice. And while they may be one of the loudest or biggest mm-hmm. just in terms of their numbers, I'm always just like struck, like, how do you sit like that? How do you say something like that in a, in a, in a rehearsal? How do you look so dismayed at your lot in life to be sitting first chair violin? How do you, how do you have that outlook on life? Do you not ever go outside? (laughs) Well, you know, and, and no, it's so it, I'm painting with a broad brush. I, I'm aware, but, um, and I, but it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's it's tricky, but the thing is, as with any uh, work that you end up doing. um, So, of course, now in this time, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. But six months ago. An orchestral musician would have felt uh, a bunch of things, one. I've got a regular schedule and I'm talking about, you know, Pittsburgh symphony is a wonderful orchestra. So they, the regular schedule, um, they had a contract. They had good relationships with some of their friends in the orchestra and testy relationships with others, variable relationship with the conductor, but they had the work every day. And in that work was dependable standards, Beethoven symphonies. Brahms symphonies, uh, film scores increasingly, video games increasingly, right? Mm-hmm. Stuart Copeland increasingly playing uh, 
a concerto. So, um, so they had a mixed bag of stuff, but they felt, and they had been educated from their early days at conservatory that, that there are two things that this is, uh, they've clawed their way to the top. And that, that is a, a sacred calling in one sense and hard factory work in another. Mm-hmm. So, and anyone who prepares for orchestra auditions is being put through the ringer in their lessons. There are <clears throat> hundreds of excerpts that most instruments have to know forwards and backwards, play them in their sleep. And then they're, they audition against hundreds of other applicants. One of them is chosen and the others are rejected. They get into that job. They're excited as hell to be there. And then after 10 years or 20 years, all they can think of is retirement or what else they could do to entertain themselves. And I think that that's humans. Humans, when there is a, when you end up doing the same thing every single day, that is what it's going to be. Some orchestras have gotten around that first by having a much more cooperative uh, governing structure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, of course, there, there is this, that, that thing in front of them, that person, uh, haranguing them or being disinterested or being domineering the conductor and that there is in the audience in the traditions and countries have slightly different traditions, which I'd like to just mention soon. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the feeling that that's the boss or the general of the army and then the orchestra is the army and they're the workers and they just fit together like a tightly meshed machine, right? right. They just work together. And of course um, the history of the orchestra is something different uh, within the ranks of the orchestra. Orchestras are, have prided themselves on being unruly. Right. Mm. And what in do you mean? some countries, historically priding themselves historically on and in different, different countries, orchestras have a different attitude towards their conductor. Uh-huh. They have a different attitude towards the music. Um, I remember a friend who played in an Italian orchestra. Uh, Italian musicians are very proud of their fierce independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conduct- if they loved the conductor, they, the conductor wouldn't have to move and they would just play beautifully. Another conductor that they despised would be up there begging them to do one thing, would ask for more, they'd play softer, would ask oh. for less, they'd play louder. <laughs> uh, and this, this is everyday life, you know, and, or was at least at that time. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it, it's a labor-intensive thing. So there are unions, and unions are are very important uh, in in all aspects of working life. And sometimes they help, and sometimes they hinder what is the altruistic purpose of the enterprise. Um, but but for the audience, there is a uh, uh, an, a, a feeling of um, that this is a package deal, right? So on the in uh, off the stage in the audience, it's the feeling of this is j- just like watching a movie. Right. Um, things work together. The audience really doesn't notice what's happening. On stage, there are so many remarkable interactions uh, that either support or tear apart the music. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly, I can, I won't talk about an incident 
just to mention that I once saw the Cleveland Orchestra. I've seen and heard it play at its very worst and at its very best. Mm-hmm. And it's all about relationships, mm-hmm. right? I'm drawing this all back to the idea of composing for orchestra. So um, someone decides to commission you and you are either a known quantity or you're not. Then there's another level of relationship with the players. They will get your parts. Mm-hmm. And if your parts are eminently readable, there's a, a certain love automatically mm-hmm. occurring. If they are not readable, if the language is uh, unknown to the player, that will tear things apart. Then there is the relationship of um, where it is on the program and how hard do they have to work for the rest of the program? How hard will they have to work with for you? So in taking on a commission, a wise composer is thinking about everything that could go wrong and at the same time hoping to take advantage of the opportunity to write their best work usually on a short deadline with, because you're writing easily 16 to 30 lines on the score. There are so many opportunities for typos and Mm -hmm. deep flaws and blind spots. And you put that work in, you will be paid not nearly enough for the hours you put in probably. I mean, you could easily be paid five cents an hour for the time you you end up putting in, Mm -hmm. especially since you're generating the parts yourself usually. Right. and it will be played once. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be it, usually. So my task as a composer has been to try and cover all bases by thinking each one of them as interwoven relationships. Mm-hmm. So I have a relationship to the conductor. I want to fulfill and honor and and allow to thrive in the future. I want the players to enjoy my work. I don't want them to feel that I'm writing down to them or trying to make things impossible for them to enjoy what they're doing. I want the audience to be engaged and I can't count on enough rehearsal time. Mm -hmm. So um, there has to be something in the music that comes out no matter how the performance goes. I think what you said earlier, I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought, but mm-hmm. you were, you were saying that like, you keep talking about relationships and I think about the things in my life that I've made me question the premise upon which a lot of relationships in different ensembles, like, like for, for me personally being shocked for me, the first time I ever realized that that was a relationship was I was subbing with the Akron symphony. Larry Snyder mm-hmm. had been like, Hey, come play Tam Tam for, um, uh, what's the Prokofiev, um, Something on the ice. Uh, uh, age of. Damn it. Uh, uh, not the fifth symphony. No, uh, it's something about ice. Uh, I'm losing my mind, Roger. I had it right there on the tip of my Acier d'or. Um, Scythian suite. I'm pretty sure it's Prokofiev. Anyway, I'm playing Tam Tam. Let's just let's say there's a piece about ice. It's by Prokofiev, and I'm playing Tam Tam. And <laughs> Chris, uh, and um, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but he was the assistant conductor with Cleveland for a while. Von Dagny, am I saying that right? Christoph von Dagny. Von Dagny, yes. Um, yeah, he was the 
The conductor. Yeah. Well, and at the, he came down and guest conducted at Akron and was conduct, uh, guest uh, conducting okay. this concert. And, um, oh, Alexander Nevsky. That's what it was. Sorry. Not, oh, I, oh. I think well, there, there, is, there is ice. There yeah. is ice. I just, in the, it. in the film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a picture guy, Roger. Um, yeah, no, I think it, it's a film. It was, I think wasn't you're right. it a film score. And then, I think yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's you're more, probably more right than I am. But, but anyway, I'm playing Tam Tam, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a tuba entrance and it's not going well. And somebody snickers and then we try it again and, and it sort of cracks a little bit and somebody snickers and then a trombone enters early and they snicker again. And Larry's getting like fuming in the back and Christoph drops his hand and he just says, I just want to like clear up something before we move forward. Um, and I just want to make sure we all understand. I'm not mad. Like there's real problems in the world, but I want you all to know that they're going to blame me for whatever happens tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And this is not my first rodeo. I'm used to it. But I want you all to know that I'm the only one up here not making a sound. <laughs> Measure 30. And and it was like, and he didn't yell, but I was like, oh, like he is pointing out. And I wasn't aware of it, but he was pointing out that everybody in the room was abdicating their personal responsibility. Like they weren't yes. able to, they didn't see it as a relationship to the music, to the conductor to me as the student in the room who's learning about what this is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't think it was a conscious, it's not a, con- I don't, I don't look at the tuba player or whoever, or the trombonist. It wasn't a conscious effort to be, to be lazy or to be anything. It was just like something about that environment mm-hmm. allows people to feel like they don't have to participate in a way that they would in a solo performance or in a duo or a percussion quartet or whatever. Um, and that had done, Von Dany, uh, Nanyi, um, when he said that, I was like, it absolutely imprinted on my brain. Um, when David Lang writes a piece, like he wrote the concerto, this concerto man made for, mm-hmm. for so, um, we premiered it with LA and, in, and then we did the European premiere with the um, BBC orchestra and David Lang walks in the room and the first people he goes to are the basses because he wrote a really hard bass part. Yes. And he, he walks did. down the line. And he shakes everybody's hands and he says, I'm sorry. And they all laugh. They all open up the first page because they're all sight reading. That's what happens, right? And they start laughing. And it's like David – and it's, it, go, it reminds me of this cage, like the laughter is preferable to tears. And David, it's not – I don't want to say he's being like – he's not being disingenuous. He just knows how to make that relationship mm-hmm. start from the place he wants it to start, which yes. is a place of caring and a place of understanding that David, despite his faults – is a human who wants his music to sound good and he wants you to enjoy it. And every time he does, when David's not able to be in the room, I notice a difference. And I I've learned from that. I will, I will go up and talk to the concert master before I talk to the uh, conductor. I'll go talk to the principal. I'll go talk to the glockenspiel player because I know that glock player has a ridiculous, has a part that's harder than mine and no one hears it, you know, like I'm playing the concerto for fuck's sake, you know Um, it's important. And yeah, so it's a composer who is also doing other things right. at the same time. Right. Having, yeah. Well, how do you, I mean, but that's a, that's a also, I mean, we also have this image of like, no, I'm the composer. I don't want to compromise my art or I'm the orchestra musician. I'm your, I'm, I'm just the interpreter. I have no say on this. Mm-hmm. Like that seems to me like both parties are sort of abdicating their responsibility mm-hmm. to each other. And I'm curious right. for, I mean, how do we how do you teach your composition students to have their eyes on their aesthetic prize their mission as a mm-hmm. composer while 
seemingly making compromises along the way to make the experience, to make whatever comes out at the end look most like they wanted it to look like. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, um, you may have already answered the question, but that's. <laughs> no, uh, I, I can, uh, I'll try and draw connections. Um, so for orchestra musicians, they often, their attitude comes from the idea that they, their job is just to follow orders. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now there have been, uh, I, I've had wonderful experiences. Uh, I remember most recently uh, seeing the Berlin Philharmonic with uh, Simon Rattle, who's one of my favorite conductors, mm-hmm. and watching him collaborate with the Berlin Philharmonic in Carnegie Hall in a program that included Berg three pieces, Webern six pieces and Schoenberg five pieces for orchestra and the Brahms second symphony. Wow. Which from any orchestral musicians point of view is an outrageously difficult program. Mm -hmm. Brahms has its own difficulties, but then to do that at the end after these Berg, Schoenberg, Weber. I mean, the Berg is just an astonishing piece. (laughs) I don't, I've never played any Berg, but I know enough about Berg to be like, it is, it is like going into the matrix really. And, um, um, I, uh, I have never had such continuous ecstasy at an orchestral concert. And it, it was, um, it, it began with Rattle coming out in the orchestra standing and the feeling that he was not the general mm-hmm. and that there was this incredible, um, the feeling that each one of the musicians standing up was an individual and you even sensed that they were individuals who were happy to be amongst their friends. You can, you, then, can, you can tell that when you walk into like a coffee shop that operates the same way. Like, yes. Like it's not, it's not exactly. hard to see that. It's, it, and it, it, even from hundreds of feet away right. on right. That, that enormous stage in Carnegie Hall, and I was very high up. And, and so then the, then the music began and it was, uh, it was the feeling that not only did the conductor know every single note. He knew exactly the personality of every musician playing it and what kind of invitation to give mm. each one of them a different kind of invitation to the brass to play than the first violins, a way of encouraging the cellos. And this, this is, this is the true art of conducting. It has nothing to do with beat patterns. It has nothing to do with your encyclopedic knowledge, although one needs to know every note, that is of no use if you can't engage in dialogue with your players. And it was of such tra- absolute transparency that I, I, my jaw was, my mouth was open the whole time. And mm-hmm. I thought, I've never heard a recording this beautiful. I've never heard a recording with all the mic placements and all of the engineering that goes into it. I've never heard a recording this, this transparent and beautiful mm-hmm. and passionate. And then the Brahms came and, and that that's a piece I know very well. Mm-hmm. And it was again, a breath of fresh air. And then at the end, 
the conductor was not ever at the front of the stage for the applause. Yeah. Not ever. He walked through the entire orchestra and chatted and hugged and shook hands with every single one of them. I like that you call a cue an invitation. Yep. Like, I, I, that's a, <laughs> no, I know it. Is, I mean, I know it is, but it's, it is a, it's an invitation is, is an acknowledgement of a relationship. You're opening mm-hmm. a door. A cue is an acknowledgement of a hierarchical structure that is in place. And um, I'm going to start calling cues and so percussion invitations. Can I get an invoca- invitation to come in at letter That's S in invitation. third construction? Yes. Um, that would be wonderful. Well, Ro- Roger, I'm curious. Um, um, so, go, sorry, go ahead. You can fin- finish up. I, I can. So uh, uh, a friend, Eric Grauda, witnessed me conducting an orchestra that he used to play in. Mm-hmm. And it was a very difficult piece. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, it's really an act of faith when you cue. You don't know if your university orchestra will (laughs) be there for you. It is a true act of faith. And I said, yes, every moment in life has to be an act of faith and you have to really believe well the difference the difference be, like the the where the rubber meets the road with orchestra university orchestra conductors is those who who know who think they're going to get a response and those who know they don't know if they're going to get a response like mm-hmm. and i feel i feel like it's the people who think they're going to get a response that are delusional and the rest <laughs> yep. um i'm curious i mean when you talk about relationships i want to switch a little bit here to something mm-hmm. else that 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 you have has been a big sort of, I don't want to say red flag, but a like, boom, a big mile marker in, in my life and how you and I intersect. You've been talking a lot about relationships in terms of, in the, the sort of nuance and messiness of them. And I think a lot about John Cage. Um, when I think about somebody who is now being sort of lionized and canonized and conserved now in a box, like mm-hmm. he's going to start to appear in music history textbooks in the way that Webern and Beethoven have yes. been. That's what conservation does over time. And I'm, and I have been surprised in, to sort of see that, that evolution happen in real time mm-hmm. um, at the sort of, um, it seems like there's an active approach to make him a less and less messy person over time. And that's what, that's what history does, mm-hmm. I think by yes. default. But I, you always talk to me about cage. You never told me that he was a purely ideologically uncomplicated, uh, true, pure person who never contradicted himself. Oh, no. <laughs> and, no. and, um, and I, I don't know where you want to sort of, take off here about John Cage, but I guess I could say, how, how did John Cage influence your life? And what, what did you, I mean, you moved to New York, you said in 78 to 88, that was a big, the cage died in 92. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So yep. you were sort of there in New York during a time when John Cage was like, when people were starting to not just know who he was, but care who he was. Like those are also two different things. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to, I think people knew and cared about him before, but it was near the end of his life. He was, he had gone through the like 433 stage and he was getting into this part, this other, the tail end of his career. And that, that's sort of where you intersected with him. And I'm curious if you could talk about that for a little bit. Hey, well, it's, um, and if I've said anything incorrect, please, um, no, correct no, me. I, I, um, I think interestingly for cage, unlike many other composers that there's there isn't a 
parallel line. There isn't a single line of development uh, that can be deducted from the music itself. Hmm. Right. So um, four minutes and 33 is uh, actually not the touchstone for me uh, in the way it is for historians. Mm -hmm. I think most responsible historians realize this, that um, it's his reaction to, I think, a Robert Rauschenberg painting that was a blank white canvas. Mm -hmm. And it intersected with Cage's interest in... uh, uh, his understanding of Zen, um, and it intersects with things that were going on in his life personally. Mm. And um, my association with him is from the end of his life. So, mm-hmm. uh, but when you meet someone at any point in their life, and then you read about them at the time or after the fact, there are some things that harmonize and some things that don't. Mm-hmm. Right? So there is, um, there is a strain in his personality um, that I'm pretty sure anyone who actually spent any time with him was aware of that he was um, obsessive compulsive is not the right word, mm-hmm. but he was profoundly attentive um, and it, I think it was a compulsion. I think it was also as a means of trying to make sense of things that could not be made sense of. Hmm. Uh, I don't think this is a theory that I would defend in court, but all I, all I have uh, to base this on are my, it turned out, after the fact, I realized many interactions with him. So I, um, I first met him in Severance Hall in the seventies uh, at a concert when Apartment House 1776 was performed with Mahler's Fifth Symphony. That was the symphony that we did man-made with. It's just like, why is it that people pair, pair Mahler 5 with the, with the new yes. crazy thing going on? <laughs> and you you have to wonder. And the, the thing is, it was conducted by, by Matthias Baumert, a wonderful composer and, uh, and you know, and, you know, Swiss, I think he's Swiss, uh, a, a great Mahlerian, uh, although much neater than some would want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, and then the cage uh, happened, and there were three out of four vocal solo. I think there were all four of the vocal soloists, and um, there was a little bit of disrespect from the orchestra when the conduct the Daniel Majeski comes out to ask for the A, and the orchestra erupts into a big tone cluster, right? But nonetheless, because they were tuning is, before this- John Cage's piece. Yes. Oh, got it. Okay. Right. And instead of the conductor, there was the large analog clock that was bred out and put on the wall. So um, that concert was life-changing for me in every way, the both the Mahler and the Cage, and the curious relationship between them. Mm. And I just was 
blinded by awe uh, and saw him and handed him my ticket and said, could I have your autograph? You're amazing. I'm, I'm this kid, right? like 19 year old or something. And uh, like following him to the bathroom, following him to the bathroom, like Mr. Cage, Mr. Cage, yeah, (laughs) right into the stall. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 you know, and so I and he just gave me this big smile, and it was total attention, Mm -hmm. very cheerful, yes, and thank you for listening. And you know, so then uh, at Stony Brook, uh, I was told about the Freeman Etudes, uh, he was working on them, we decided to bring him out, and I'm played them for him and uh, many, many, many interactions, all as it turns out central and nothing more central than realizing that under that one could be many things at the same time. Mm. One could be uh, a serene presence and underneath be needled and irritated by things. And it is very clear that he was very, uh, particular mm-hmm. in everything he did his love of words the way he spoke the care the obsessive care that he created each piece uh using chance operations mm-hmm. what does that mean i mean you're using chance you're spending hours days weeks months creating a work that you use chance operations to finally realize mm-hmm. And there are many stories about that. There's, um, so there is some kind of thing that quite apart from hype, uh, the fact that he, he was always conscious of who he was by that. I mean, I think all his life, he was very aware of that he was John Cage and was partly uncomfortable by it and partly had childlike wonder that he was able to do all of these marvelous things because he could enlist people in these adventures. Mm. And that, that's, that, that's the thing. Your story about David Lang is true of every composer who is able to work with many people. It is profoundly about making connections Well, relationships. I mean, I, I feel like we need that to put that, we need to put that on a t-shirt for this podcast, but it, I, it could be, I mean, I, so, I, I was very fortunate. I mean, where I'm of the generation of musicians, there's like, there's a split of those of us that worked with, with uh, John Cage and those of us that didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real clear generational shift uh, in our, in the percussion field in particular, there's a very clear generational shift or divide. Um, mm-hmm. But where my path like where it sort of rubbed up against John Cage's where we were very fortunate to have dinner with Merce Cunningham in his loft where he mm-hmm. and Cage lived together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went into that with this sort of, um, I don't know how to say it, this like sacred approach. Like mm-hmm. I'm going into a church like this is, I take my shoes off, take your hat off, genuflect, dip your finger in the water, do the whole thing, light a candle, put a dollar in the thing and move on, you know? And I walk in and the whole room is filled with, you know, Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, mm-hmm. Cage's Rock Garden. <clears throat> um, Merce wheels over in his wheelchair, offers me a, a Pinot Noir from the Willamette mm-hmm. Valley. Yes. Because he loves Oregon wines, Pacific Northwest. And just starts like pointing things out like, hey, yeah, this is, you know, this is a blah, blah, blah painting by by Bob. And and it's underneath the fire sprinkler. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, Merce, like, do you, like what? 
whatever. And he's like, well, I'll just call Bob and he'll send me another one. Like, <laughs> and I think like, I don't want to, I don't want, it's like his, his, uh, Rauschenberg's art is, is worth some, somebody has decided it's worth money, mm-hmm. but there was a relationship there in the same way that you gave me a piece. Rauschenberg gave Mer- his friend a piece. And, and I asked, I was like, he was like, Merce, tell me, tell me what it was like. He's like, well, John won $7,000 on an Italian game show talking about mushrooms. Um, he bought a VW bus with most of that money and me and Bob and Teeny and Marcel and David, um, we all got in Xenia and we all got in a bus and we drove down the Jersey Turnpike and he's like, and you know what? We fell asleep at a turnstile once and then we just decided we were too tired. So we pulled over and we foraged for mushrooms on the Jersey Turnpike around like exit, you know, 12, you know, and I'm like, exit 12, that's where the Molly Pitcher service area is or whatever it is, you know, just, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, he's a person. Like, I'm. they're not doing magic. They're not Penn and Teller out there. They're not. They're not uh, these aliens that have come down from outer space and have some special tool from three thousand years ahead of time to help. They're they're digging out soil and he every day just tilling the soil. He's like, I was like, tell me what what's your last memory of John? He's like, smoking cigarettes at the table, throwing away more music than he kept. Mm-hmm. And I at that point I don't even think I knew Cage was a smoker. I was like, he was a smoker. He's like. Oh my God! All the time, like <laughs> you know. There are, I mean, there's a book in, of photographs from many decades, and in almost every one, he has a cigarette in his. Yeah, hand. well, and it's like I was. I'm thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I just think back to like the the smell of smoke was still like you could like that stuff takes a long time to get out of an apartment. Yes, you know, and yeah. I had it was there still. I think of Bruce Taub, like my first experience. Like mm-hmm. he sent me, you know, Bruce is a smoker. He would send me the and and I again no no longer no longer oh, good okay well great no longer but the yeah. when he would send me the drafts of the the commission that I did of, from him, um, it would reek of like I think cigarette like like ashes would fall out of the envelope, and I was like, mm-hmm. this man is toiling away. I love it. Like I grew up in a house with smokers, so I had this odd affinity for people who smoke. Like I trust people who smoke. I don't know why. That's not that's not a. I don't know that that's a healthy way to go through life, but I for some reason trust people who smoke more than those who don't. And it's a sense that hard work is being done, <laughs> right, right? And that one right. needs to. It's not an ira- It's not a rational view on life, but it's no. it's mine. Um, well, Roger, I'm. I don't want to keep you too much longer here, but I'm curious. Um, to, I, I think a lot of folks have a hard time admitting failure and admitting that. I know students. I might. This is my experience with students, and it's part of my purpose with this podcast is to sort of like demystify the human, <laughs> or at least mm-hmm. in terms of my experience. Like, what what for you is a is a very notable failure that you are very grateful happened because you wouldn't be the same person now if, if it hadn't happened. But at the time you were like horrified that it was like, <laughs> that it was going down. Um, actually so many. <laughs> um, let me, let me answer it um, in a sort of a global way. I've, I've written too much music and um I stopped composing about four years ago because I could not, I'll just be honest. I felt like I was throwing dirt on top of my own grave with each new piece that I wrote Mm. because partly because 
uh, and I always write for people. And increasingly, I was feeling compelled to write things to show friendship and affection. And I was also sort of it felt like I was in a race against time and I was throwing things down and um, I felt that I, I had written enough more than 350 pieces. And it's not that the, the last works so far since I, maybe I'm thinking of it as a break, but the last works where they would alternate between perfectly fine, well-formed works that gave pleasure and other works that were some quality of difficulty that was intractable, that you couldn't figure. It, I, some were too cramped. Others had too many notes. And it's it's not like a, a, a line from a movie. It's literally that one's desire as a composer crowds out one's sense of time. Mm. And, and of course, everything, the, the sea that we swim in is time. I mean, everything, vision, sound, uh, chemical action, reactions all happen in time. That's the common medium. And um, I, I realized that I needed to stop. And I had been haunted by so many flaws in my works. Uh, and especially I've written a lot of vocal music and I've had many commissions for uh, chamber operas uh, that have been successfully performed. And I, um, I realized that this was the time to stop and reassess. And so I've, I mean, I teach so many composition students and they are so varied and I learn so much every time I, I meet a new student to advise, I end up learning things from them, mm -hmm. which is the ideal life right. for me. Uh, and at this point, I finally realize all the things that I don't know and certainly didn't know when I wrote these earlier works. So I've just released um, to those who've been nagging me for my songs, uh, the co collected 52 songs, one for each week of the year. Mm. And some of them, were pieces that uh, there was a song from the eighties. I wrote the text, the text seemed correct and told the story it needed to tell. And I could not make the music serve the vocal line and the vocal line was cramped. And I now as an established composer and teacher have taken my younger self in hand I wish I could do this with my my younger self as a social person. I wish I could go back and fix all the horrible things that I did to my friends. <laughs> this is really a terrible. I, I have anxiety still 30, 40 years after about things that I did as a younger person. Being a human but is, at, a, is yeah, a, it's, it's it's a, a quandary. Yeah. <laughs> and, but at least with one's composition, right. you can right those wrongs. And mm. so... Because those songs, they are kind of, I mean, people say they're like children, but much better. They're emissaries. They're perhaps the most valuable thing to leave behind because if they're well-written, they will give pleasure to those 
who engage with them. Mm. But if there are flaws that you now know better and could fix, <laughs> it really is a crime not to at least to save any potential performer or listener to your work from having to struggle with an awkward moment. It's like being an architect, I imagine. I mean, granted, the, the consequences for an architect not fit it, fixing mistakes that they may have made 10 years ago are different than it is for a composer. But I mean, if you if, fall down, right, <laughs> right, right, or bridges or whatever, it's like if you, if you had built something 10 years ago based on the standards of 10 years ago, even if they weren't your own personal standards, and then 10 years later, the standards have changed and you realize that you missed one brick and that brick, if someone just flushes a toilet the wrong way, is going to cause yep. the whole thing to yep. fall down. You probably go back and fix it if you're a good, if you're good at your job. Um, yep. But as a composer, the consequences, it's interesting to me, composers often will, they're very like, some will draw a line and be like, no. I am throwing away. That music is dead to me. Um, I've thrown things away yeah. very happily. Um, but but out of respect, I, I mean, and this probably comes from working with younger composers. So I have a window um, into, I can see back what it was like to be fresh mm-hmm. to the discipline. And there occasionally will be even in the most unconscious composer, there will be a flash of inspiration mm-hmm. or there will be something that truly is beautiful yeah. or telling. Yeah. And there, there can be an idea that really should always have existed. Yeah. And it's, it's couched in, it's clothed in, in rags or it's, it's structured in such a way that the, the real Clair, uh, greatness of it can't be heard entirely. Right. That there's there are things clouding it, and so if I could do that for my students, I should do that for my own younger self, hmm. because there was some something that was good. Right. Back in the day. Yeah, you, I mean, you're your own best teacher. I mean, I think that's the, that's the thing as a teacher that I'm trying to get better at is teaching my students how to learn, like. Not to do things the way I did it, but like you need to be able to you need to be able to identify whether which tires has the low pressure, and yes. I can teach you how to do that. But if you don't, then sort of keep doing it on your own. There's going to be a point where I have to look at another student. I got to move on. Like like yep. and and I think doing that is on your you know in self reflection about whether it, you know for me how I play steel drums, how I've talked about steel drums in the past, what it is I you know lectures I've given during a concert about the history of the steel drums and I've gotten one thing wrong and I realize it on my drive home and I've told a room full of 300 Caribbean people about the history of their, you know, and I'm just like mortified and I'm texting my friend Kendall and be like, I'm so sorry. And he's like, dude, take a breath, you know, <laughs> but, but it, I think it's, I think it's important. And, and Roger, I just want to wrap up. Um, I, I, I'm grateful for your time and I'm really, really genuinely mean it when you reached out to me the other day you, I don't mean this to sound the way it probably sounds, but you were the last person I, I expected and to have gotten that email from. And it was very simple. You didn't do anything other than say hello. I just was thinking of you. Um, yeah. But speaking of time, it was well-timed, sir. And so whatever, whatever vein of <laughs> t- relativity of time you were tapped into, uh, I appreciate that of you. Um, is there any... Where can fo- is there a link or something where folks can find out about your 52 songs or just more about your music if they want to learn more about you? Uh, I have a website, rogerzahab.net, and I have a YouTube channel, um, Roger Zahab, that has um, 
either works of mine or that I've performed or of friends. So I've curated it as well. And uh, the most recent things are are part of this process of self-reevaluation. And um, yeah, I think that's, I, I'm, I seem to be all over the internet. I, I try not to think about it, <laughs> but those are two. The, the, uh, the website has a, an exhaustive list of all of my works and the YouTube channel has uh, highlights and they're, they're live performances or even if recorded, they're recorded to sound live. So I've, I've kept technical flaws and edited only musical flaws to, to get the phrases to work. So oh, okay. it, they're, they're a true picture of my performance and those of my friends. And um, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending time with me. I, I think of you fairly often. And I think that I, our, I hope our conversation the <laughs> today, our, our conversation today is a good indication of why. Well, I, I hope so too, Roger. And um, I want to, just tell you, of course, my microphone is always on. If you ever want to chat about anything, I, I, I love, um, I'm always bummed at the end of these podcasts because I realize that we've been speaking for an hour and 30 minutes. And I think anybody who's listening to this still knows about 1% of what it is that you and I know about each other. And I wish we could just leave the mic on and talk all day. I wish we didn't have to eat or go to the bathroom or do or have a job or do any of the things that, that we want to do. So, um, if you're up for it, I would love to do something in the future. We'll do part two and and just keep the conversation going. I always available. I don't know how it helps the world, but it helps me. So I'll start there. <laughs> um, Let's keep that feedback loop going. All right, sounds good, Roger. Tell Rob I said hey, and I love you, mm-hmm. and take care and be safe. Okay. All right, take good care, Josh. See you. I'll see you. Okay, thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, hilarious videos and amazing content. Uh, if you're interested at all in percussion and laughing, check it out, liquiddrum.com. Uh, also, all the steel drums that I play uh, were built and tuned by uh, Kyle Dunleavy. Uh, Dunleavy Steel Pans down um, in the Philadelphia area. Dunleavy, uh, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y, pans.com. Okay, I hope you're all doing well um, and staying as sane as you can and uh, keeping healthy. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.